0: This morning, I've chosen a passage which is probably familiar uh, to some of you, maybe to many of you, and and perhaps even to most of you. And familiarity is a challenge because, as you know, we know familiarity breeds contempt. And I hope and I pray that familiarity with God's word never will breed contempt for us because that's very very bad. But sometimes maybe it doesn't breed contempt, but maybe it breeds complacency. And I know that that happens to me from time to time. If it's a passage of scripture that I'm familiar with, that I know, maybe I've even memorized it, the words kind of go you know, in one ear and out the other or in one eye and out the other, if that's actually physically possible. I'm not sure. But you, you know, you get the point. You just kind of go along and you read it and you're familiar with it and it's da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and and I already know it. And that's dangerous too, because God's word is living and it's active and it's it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it's able to pierce right into our very hearts. But we have to be open to it and we have to let God work on us in that way. And many of you have gone through uh, the project or one of the foundation's seminars. And if you have, you know that one of the things that I love to do is take a familiar passage and say, forget everything you know about that passage. Put aside your preconceptions. Put aside the dozens of sermons that you may heard, have heard uh, on it before. Put aside what you know and read it or listen to it as if it's the first time that you're encountering it. And for some of you, this will be the first time that you encounter this passage. In that case, you actually have an advantage because your lack of familiarity will help you to be open to what God is wanting to say to us through this passage. But I think that should be true for all of us. So if you brought your Bible, go ahead and follow along, but don't read the next verse until we get to it. And if it means that you have to turn off your phone, unless you're, you know, tweeting about the service, uh, you know, go ahead and whatever you need to do, you get the point that I'm trying to make as we're looking at this passage, because I think if you do it that way, you're going to get a lot more out of it this morning. So I want to dive right into Luke chapter 10 and start at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, by this time in Jesus' ministry, he was beginning to be viewed as a respected teacher by many of the people. They saw him as a rabbi, a Jewish teacher who was being used by God in their lives, and he's gaining popularity. People want to hear what Jesus has to say, but the problem was the existing Jewish religious leadership didn't like this, because effectively this upstart guy who they don't really know where he's from, they don't know where he's gotten his training, this guy is becoming in some sense a threat to their power base because he's beginning to gain some followers. So this one, an expert in the law, meaning he's an expert in what we would call the Old Testament law, he's an expert in the Hebrew scriptures, he comes to Jesus and he asks them this and he asked Jesus this incredibly profound question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the answer to that question is not only at the heart of Judaism, which is essentially the religion that he was practicing at that time, but it's ultimately at the heart of Christianity. And the rabbis, the Jewish teachers would debate this endlessly, and on and on and on. So he brings to Jesus this controversial question in order to try to test Jesus. And Jesus responds by saying, what is written in the law? How do you read it? You're an expert in the law. You're a Jewish lawyer. You ought to know the Hebrew scriptures. What do they say about the answer to the question that you're asking me? And I love what Jesus is doing. He's essentially taking the guy's question, turning it around, and saying, You answer it first, and then I'll respond to it. The man responds, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting from two very well-known passages in the Hebrew Scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 says that we should love God with our whole being— And Leviticus 19, 18 says, we should love our neighbors as ourselves. So he's taking those two verses and he's saying, that's the key to inheriting eternal life. Love God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus responds, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Just do it. That's it. All you gotta do, love God perfectly, Love your neighbor perfectly and you're set. You've got eternity in the bag. You're gonna be with God forever in heaven with him and you're gonna be blessed. The problem is that's a whole lot easier to say than it is to actually do it. And the lawyer, being a good lawyer, knew it. And so he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And there you go, and that's the question that sets up what Jesus is about to do. So here's this lawyer, and he has kind of hung himself by saying, all you gotta do to inherit eternal life is love God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, fine, you've said it, just do it. And the lawyer is beginning to feel a bit uncomfortable, he's beginning to feel a little bit guilty, so he does what any good lawyer is gonna do, he's looking for a loophole. Who is my neighbor? Do I really have to love everybody? Or are some people not actually my neighbors? And so Jesus, being a good teacher, responds to him by telling a story. And this is where we get into the main section that we're gonna be looking at this morning. Verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's not recounting something that actually happened. He's telling a parable. He's telling a story. He's telling a story that's not necessarily true. It didn't necessarily happen with a particular man walking down from Jerusalem to Jericho, but it could have been. It's a true to life kind of story that anybody hearing it would have said, this is realistic because in those days, they knew that the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho was a notoriously dangerous road. It drops about a third of a mile over a span of 17 miles. It's rocky. It's winding through the desert. It's lined with caves. There are robbers who are hiding out in the caves all the time, and everybody knew that this is a dangerous road to be walking down. In fact, there was a pass that, a mountain pass that you had to go through called the Pass of Adumim, which, which is related to the Hebrew word for blood. And so nobody listening to Jesus is gonna be surprised that Jesus chooses that setting for his guy who's gonna be beaten up and robbed and left to be half dead. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now in that culture priests and Levites, they are the key Jewish religious leaders. And you would expect and the people would have expected that if anybody is going to care about a hurting person, it's going to be a priest or it's going to be a Levite because it's very clear in the Old Testament law that we need to care for those who are hurting. We need to care for those who are injured. We need to care for those Who are in need. So you'd expect that a priest and a Levite would do this, but of course they end up looking at the guy, seeing him, and then passing by, crossing over the street to the other side of the road, and not doing anything to help him. And if you read the different people who write about this passage, some of them come up with the different reasons as to why these guys might have skipped and passed by the guy. And they point out, and somewhat rightly so, but I think they're a little bit off here. They point out that at least for the priest, if he had touched this guy, he could have rendered himself ceremonially unclean. What if the guy had been dead? If a priest touches a dead body, he's ceremonially unclean and he can no longer serve in the temple until he ritually cleanses himself. And the same Thing is basically true for the Levites. So maybe these guys were afraid of incurring this ceremonial uncleanness and not being able to serve in the temple. Problem with that is Jesus says they were going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. They had finished serving in the temple, they were heading down to Jericho. And they had plenty of time to help this guy. And if they became unclean, they could have ritually cleansed themselves before they got back to Jerusalem, and they would have been able to continue to serve in the temple. So that's not a good excuse. And other people say, yeah, so it's a notoriously dangerous road and maybe the robbers were still around and the priests and Levi were afraid that they'd be hurt too. And if they're hurt, then you got two or three guys lying by the side of the road and nobody's gonna be able to help anybody because you know, they didn't have their weapons. You know, they didn't have guns back then. They didn't have anything to protect themselves with. So maybe that's what they did and they were afraid of that as well. And the interesting thing is that Jesus doesn't tell us He doesn't tell us why these guys didn't help that man. He doesn't tell us because I don't think that that's important to what he's trying to do. Jesus is trying to help us to see that they were unwilling to help somebody in need. They had the opportunity, they were unwilling to do it, and as a result, they weren't loving their neighbor as themselves And if you're familiar with the Old Testament passages that relate to this, you know that there's a connection between loving your neighbor as yourself and loving God with your whole heart. If you don't love your neighbor as yourself, it's evident that you actually don't love God with your whole heart. And what Jesus is saying is that these Jewish religious leaders were not fulfilling the answer that the other religious leader had said to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Okay, you guys up for a quiz? Kinda get going on a sleepy Sunday morning? We're gonna have a quiz on classic literature. In the story of Goldilocks, how many bears were there? Three, three. very good. I heard somebody say four, but no, it's three, and we'll, we'll have remedial uh, class afterwards, okay. In the story with the big bad wolf who huffed and puffed and was gonna blow the house in of the various little pigs, how many little pigs were there? Three. Good, excellent. Okay, here's the tough one. The billy goats gruff, right? There's a troll on the bridge and the billy goats wanna cross the bridge. How many billy goats were trying to cross the bridge? Three, excellent. Okay. So afterwards, and I made this challenge after the, for the first service and nobody took me up on it. Afterwards, if you can tell me what gruff means without actually looking it up in, on the internet, uh, you don't get a prize, but you get my admiration for being uh, much more well-educated than I am. I had to look it up on the internet. In all three of these stories, which scene proves to be the turning point? Which person ends up being the hero? The third, right? Okay, obvious, pretty straightforward. Your kids in first grade are gonna know the answer to that question. Why? Because literature all over the world, not just the United States, but all over the world, not just in the 21st century, but all the way back 2000 years to the first century in literature all over the world, time and time and time again. The third person is the hero. The third scene is the climax. Things come in threes and the third one is the one that you're gonna be looking for. And Jesus knew that. And so his audience was expecting the hero to be the third guy. And the third guy that shows up is the hero, but he's not the guy whom they expected to be the hero. And you have to understand in first century Judaism, at the top of the pecking order, at the top of the social ladder are the priests and the Levites. These guys are the Pinnacles of society. And so that's why the first guy to come along is a priest, and the second guy to come along is a Levite. If you continue on down the Jewish social order, the next thing that you're going to find is the everyday Jew. They're the normal. Jewish people. They're not going to be the priests. They're not going to be the Levites. They're not the religious leaders. They're the basic people who are going to be sitting there listening to Jesus tell the story. And they're expecting that they, that one of them is going to be the hero in the story. And had Jesus done that, had Jesus made an average everyday Jew to be the hero of the story, it would have been the perfect way of getting a little bit of a dig in against the religious leaders. Because what he would have been doing is saying, hey, look, your religious leaders, your priest, he doesn't care about the guy. Your Levites, they don't care about the guy but you guys, you guys are the heroes of the story, you do. And so from a political point of view, if Jesus had been trying to do this kind of a populist message, he would have absolutely made an everyday Jew be the hero of the story. But that's not what he was trying to do. Verse 32, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when we saw him, he took pity on him. He's not an everyday Jew. He's not any Jew. He's a Samaritan. And when you think of the pecking order, you've got your priests, you've got your Levites, you've got your everyday Jews, and three layers down are the Samaritans. He skipped right over the everyday Jews. He skipped right over the next group of people who would have been the, the, the social outcasts, the people who were blind or lame or otherwise injured. They were still considered to be Jews, but they were outcasts in some sense. He then, he skipped right over the tax collectors and the sinners. And the tax collectors, it's not like today's IRS agents, right? We're not thrilled with the Internal Revenue Service, but we don't have this like visceral hatred at least hopefully most of us don't, where we wanna actually kill these people. Back in those days, (laughs) there are a couple of people out there anyway, somewhere not in this area, but you know what I'm saying, you watch the news, right? Back in those days, that's the way it was. Because you see, the tax collectors were Jews who had sold out to Rome. The Romans were occupying the nation of Israel at this point and they're collecting taxes from the Jews and the people who were collecting their taxes on their behalf were these Jewish tax collectors. And the way that they made their money was if the tax bill was supposed to be $100, they'd charge $120, they'd give $100 to Rome and they'd keep the $20 for themselves. They were actually doing denarii, but that's you get the point. Point being, the tax collectors are hated by these people. And yet Jesus skips right over them and he chooses a Samaritan. And see, the problem from a Jewish perspective with the Samaritans is that these guys are half breeds. The Samaritans are half Jew, half Gentile. They're mixed race. And in that day and age, being mixed race was frowned upon, it's looked down upon, it's despised by the people because they're not purebred Jews. And so there's that racial and ethnic animosity towards the Samaritans. But you add to that, there's religious animosity as well because the Samaritans practiced a a really messed up form of Judaism. They didn't practice true Judaism. So you put that all together and the people who are listening to Jesus are saying, wait a second, we're supposed to be the heroes of this story and you've chosen that guy? How in the world can this guy be the hero. And going through their minds, there's this combination of shock and, and, and anger and surprise and a little bit of, of, of discomfort as well because what's Jesus saying? He says, okay, the priests aren't doing it, the Levites aren't doing it and I'm gonna skip over all the rest of you people and I'm gonna choose somebody who you think is the scum of the earth in order to be the hero of this story. So they're a bit uncomfortable So verse 34, the Samaritan went to him. He bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn and he took care of him. And the next day, when he took out two denarii, he gave them to the innkeeper. And he said, look after him. And when I return, I'll reimburse you and pay for any extra expense that you may have. This Samaritan, this despised half-breed, picks the guy up puts him on his donkey and he doesn't just drop him off at the emergency room of Beth Israel Hospital and leave. He takes him effectively to the hospital because that's the closest thing that they had with an inn. He takes him to the inn. He rents him a room. He says to the innkeeper, take care of him and I'll pay whatever cost it takes for you to help him to get better. And you have to realize what's going on here. He's effectively giving his credit card to a Jew who's going to hate him and who lives in a very bad section of town and saying, here's my credit card, whatever it takes, I'll pay for it. And he's doing it for somebody if, he had, who had, if they had not been unconscious would have despised and hated him. And that's what this Samaritan is doing. Verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Watch what Jesus does. He's reversing the question here. The, the, the Jewish religious leader says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, who was Neighbor. And I love that because he takes his question, he flips it around, and he does it in order to wake this guy up and shake him out of his desire to justify himself and help him to see that he has a need that he's unwilling to admit. And the expert in the law, verse seven, verse thirty seven, replies and says, The one who had mercy on him, the one not the Samaritan, the one who had mercy. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan because he despises him so much. And Jesus responds and he says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. And then you're going to be all set. Now, if you're like me, you got some questions for Jesus. And I actually have a whole list of questions that I've been keeping. If you've been through any of the seminars, you know the project or foundations, you know that I like to keep a list. You ask me a question, I don't have the answer to it. I put it on my list of about 7,000 questions I'm gonna be asking Jesus You know when I get to heaven. And one of them is gonna be, actually a whole bunch of them are gonna be related to this because we. I, I got the question, don't you? Am I supposed to help everybody that I see? I mean, realistically speaking, Some of you, you take the train into New York, and then you walk from there to your office. You take the subway, and you still got to walk a couple of blocks. You walk two, three blocks, you're going to see half a dozen guys lying on the side of the the sidewalk who are needy, who've got the sign out, will work for food or help me. I need some money in some way. Does that mean that every time you see somebody, you need to stop and help them? And if you do, is it good enough just to put money in their little box or their little cup? Or do you need to actually stop and and talk to them and see what's going on in their lives and find out maybe they need some medical care? Maybe they need a little bit more than money. And what if they're on drugs or they're drunk and you know that they're going to take the money and just use it for that? But can you be sure that they're going to use it for that? Or maybe they're actually going to use it for food. And if you don't help them, what's going to happen to them? Or then you ask the question, and, and, and you say, "Okay, look, Jesus, you guys were living in the first century, and your world was pretty small. I mean, you know what? Just a hundred square miles or so. You didn't know, you know, a few thousand people. You don't run into a lot of needy people. Yes, they're there, but you only know about your little region of the world. We're living two thousand years later. We've got television. We've got newspapers. We've got the internet. You can't go a day without hearing about some need somewhere in the world. Never mind the greater." Some- Summit area or New York City. We're hearing about places, Somalia and so many other places halfway around the world. And there are more needs than I could ever possibly meet in my lifetime. I could spend all of my time and all of my resources being a good Samaritan, being a good neighbor to these people all over the world. Lord, is that what you're expecting me to do? And if you're not asking that question, it's either because you've already worked through it and you've figured it out, which which is okay, but more likely it's because you're just numb to the whole thing. Or you're kind of overwhelmed with guilt and you don't want to ask the question because you're afraid of what the answer is going to be. And you can scour this passage, you can read it a hundred times over and you're never going to find the answer to these questions because Jesus isn't asking answering those questions. He's not even asking those questions because he wants us to see that no matter what we do, no matter how many people we help, we are never going to perfectly live up to that command. He wants us to feel the weight of that. He wants us to feel uncomfortable with it. And if we're not careful, we can end up doing exactly what the Jewish lawyer was doing. Verse 27, he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And I can do the same thing. First time that I ever taught on this passage, my summary statement of the passage was, my neighbor is anyone who God brings into my path whose needs he wants me to meet. And I was pretty pleased with myself and I thought that was a pretty good summary of what's going on with this passage. And then as I was beginning to teach it, I realized what did I just do? I was justifying myself. First half is fine. My neighbor is anyone who God brings into my path. But the second part was my little caveat, whose needs he wants me to meet. See, because there might be some people whose needs he doesn't want me to meet. And so if I don't have time because I'm doing something else, or maybe I, I should be spending my money on something else, or the guy looked a little bit too scraggly, or whatever it is, God obviously doesn't want me to meet the needs. And what am I doing? I'm, I'm asking that question, who is my neighbor? Because I want to justify myself because I don't want to feel guilty about meeting all of those needs. and yet- Jesus is saying, Hey, I'm not going there, and you shouldn't either. Long, a long, long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, in a land called Texas, in a city called Dallas, I went to seminary. About 25, 30 years ago, I'm in seminary. And every day, we had to get up and we had to go to chapel. Beautiful building. We'd go in, about 500 of us would walk in, we'd sing songs, we'd hear a message, we'd worship, and we'd praise God. Awesome, I loved that part of my seminary experience. One day I get up, I drive into seminary, I go to the chapel, I start walking in and there's this guy lying on the side of the building right next to the door. And I take a look at him. He looks like he's a homeless guy. It looks like he's kind of disheveled, maybe beat up, whatever it was. And you know, the section of Dallas in which the seminary was located was a pretty seedy section. So you'd see guys like this all the time. It's not uncommon. They didn't normally come on campus, but it's not completely unheard of that you'd see a guy like that. So I took a glance at him, looked at my watch, said, I'm late, I need to get inside. So I went inside, and I sat down in my seat. Chaplain Bill comes out. He starts playing his trumpet. He's singing songs. As it was, they did the trumpet thing in those days. We should try that at Renaissance sometime. It would be, be interesting to see. Anyway, so he's doing this. We're worshiping God. We're having a grand old time, and it's just about time for the message. And wouldn't you know it, this guy decides that he wants to come in to the service, and he starts walking down the aisle, it's actually more like a shuffle, tripping over himself as he's going down the aisle, staggering as he gets up. He walks up to the platform, climbs the stairs, walks behind the podium, pauses for a second, takes off his coat, takes off his wig, takes off his fake beard, and there is Professor Reg Grant standing in front of us, and he says, folks, Five hundred of you walked right by me as you were coming into the chapel to worship God, and only two of you stopped to ask and see how I was doing, and I wasn't one of those two. There we are, preparing to be priests and Levites and teachers of the law, and only two of us were willing to stop and love our neighbor as ourselves. And my first response was, now, I, you gotta understand, I love Reg Grant, he was one of my favorite professors, but that morning he was absolutely not one of my fav- favorite professors. I mean, come on, it's manipulative, it's dirty, it's, it's, he's trying to make me feel guilty with a cheap little trick, you know, and that sort of thing. And I realized, no, I can't respond that way, so I start getting frustrated with myself, and then I start feeling guilty because I realize, you know, what? Come on, Clay, you couldn't even stop and ask how the guy is doing. And I'm realizing and now he's gonna preach this message, and I'm just gonna be like, you know, a mess. I'm I'm a guy, so I can't cry in front of all the other, you know, students there. But it's just, I mean, that's what we're going through as we're sitting there in, in that situation. And no matter how hard I try, I cannot be a good enough Samaritan. Even if I want to. I can't do it. My heart isn't always in it. And even when it is, I don't always have all of the resources. And I think that that's something that God wants me to experience. I think he wants me to feel the weight of my inadequacy. I think he wants me to feel the weight of my sin. Because when it is in my power to do it and I don't help somebody... That's often sin. And he wants me to feel that. And I end, up, I end up with a situation then where I either I try to lower the standard so that I can meet this lowered standard and I do things like ask a question, who is my neighbor? Because if I can get a good, safe answer to that question, maybe I'll be able to meet this standard. But inside I know that all I'm doing is cheapening what God has said, and I'm lowering it, and that's not what he would want from me. My other choice is just live with the guilt. And so I'm between a rock and a hard place. Do I lower the standard, or do I live with the guilt of knowing that I can never be good enough? And so I read the story of the Good Samaritan, and I and you and we feel uncomfortable. And I think that's exactly what Jesus wants for us. He wants us to feel uncomfortable but he doesn't want us to stay there. And the problem is we see only two ways out, lower the standard or live with the guilt. And Jesus says there's actually a third option. And that third option depends on the guy who appears to be missing from this particular story. Priests, Levites, everyday Jews, Where's the guy who's supposed to be the hero of the story? Where's the everyday Jew? Most of Jesus' audience were your basic everyday Jew. Where was their guy in the story? He's lying on the side of the road, beat up and bruised. He's lying there in need of rescue. He's lying there in need of help. And that gives us hope because when I realize that I don't, never, don't measure up, that I'll never be good enough to actually earn eternal life. And when I realize that God knows it and that he's done something about it and he doesn't expect me to be able to justify myself and the whole point of his parable is to remind me that I am incapable of justifying himself. Then I remembered that I don't have to choose between lowering and cheapening the standard or living with the guilt. I can instead choose to turn to the one who crossed over to my side of the road, who crossed from heaven down to earth to rescue me. I can turn to the ultimate good Samaritan, to Jesus, the one who died so that I could live. And I don't have to justify myself because I know that Jesus has justified me. I don't have to try to be the hero of my own story. I can say, Jesus, I need you to be the hero because I don't, want to, don't have what it takes in order to be the hero. I don't have to ask Jesus to lower the standard because he's already lowered himself in order to meet the standard. And all I have to do is look to him and say, Lord... I am not good enough and I never will be good enough. And in my particular case, I'm lying on the side of the road, not because somebody else has beat me up and robbed me, but I'm lying on the side of the road because of the choices that I've made. I'm lying there because of my sin. It is my fault that I am in need. And the only hope that I have is for you to cross over to the other side of the road and rescue me. Would you please be my good Samaritan. Jesus wants us to feel the weight of this, but he doesn't want to leave us to wallow in our guilt. He wants to take away our guilt, and all we have to do is admit our need and ask him to save us. And that absolutely does not mean that we shouldn't care about the poor and the needy. It absolutely does not mean that, that we shouldn't try to be good Samaritans. We absolutely should try to be good Samaritans. Yesterday, almost 50 people from Renaissance Church ran a half marathon in order to raise money for people halfway around the world who they're never gonna meet but who need clean water. Their goal was $50,000. They raised over $70,000 and now 1,400 people, are gonna be able to have clean water for the rest of their lives because we raised that money. And God is pleased with that. God is excited that we chose to do that. But if we think for one minute that $70,000 and 13.6 miles and 50 runners and all of those other things, that they make any difference as to whether or not we have eternal life, then we're missing Jesus' point. Because no matter how much money we raise, no matter how many miles we run, no matter how many wells we dig, no matter how many people, needy people on the side of the road we help, we will never be able to do enough to earn God's favor. And God is not asking us to do that because his grace is the only way that we're ultimately gonna inherit eternal life. The apostle John who was Jesus' best friend, at the end of his life, he wrote these words. He said, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Our eternal life is not based on our love for God. It's based on God's love for us. Our, it, there's nothing that we can do to earn it because Christ has already earned it before us. It's not what we do for people it's what God and Jesus Christ has done for us. And then John continues, he says in verse 11, dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. We love because he first loved us. We've got to get the direction right. God's love is the foundation of our love. We love God because he first loved us, not the other way around. We love other people because God first loved us. and." When I un- And when we understand how much God loves us, we're motivated to love others, not because we feel guilty, but because we're grateful for what God has done for us. And we want to share that with other people. It's not because it's our duty. It actually becomes our desire. And we're not saying, oh man, there's another needy person on the side of the road and I got to go help them. Otherwise God's going to be mad at me. No, we're saying how grateful I am for what God has done for me. And I want to share that love with the people who around me who need it. I'm motivated not because I have to, but because I want to. And ultimately, ultimately, I and you are not the Good Samaritan. There is only one ultimate true Good Samaritan and his name is Jesus and that is the foundation of our relationship with God and that is the foundation of our salvation and that is the foundation of our eternal life and that's the foundation of the love that we have for God and the love that we have for one another and my prayer is that I and all of us will continually look to God and say I will never be good enough but you love me in spite of that so thank you thank you for rescuing me when I'm on the side of the road, whether it's due to my sin or whether it's something that somebody else has done for me. Whenever we are hurting, whenever we are needy, whenever we're weighed down with guilt, we can look to God and say, thank you for what you have done for me in Jesus Christ and help me to embrace that. Help me to appropriate that and then give me that supernatural desire to share that same love with the people around me. And so my prayer for you is that you will continually look to God to meet your needs. And as you see him meeting your needs, I pray that your love for him will grow. And as your love for him will grow, my prayer is that you will point others to Jesus so that they can know him and love him and enjoy a relationship with him and serve him and follow him and ultimately glorify him by pointing others to Jesus as well. Let's pray together. Father, it's, it's an amazing thought to realize that no matter how hard we try, no matter how good we are, we never measure up yet you still love us, yet you still forgive us, yet you still offer grace to us. And I pray that we would not try to justify ourselves. I pray that we would not try to make excuses. I pray that we would own our sin, that we would own our brokenness. I pray that we would feel the weight of that, not so that we can feel worse about ourselves, but so that we can be relieved of that burden of always having to try to do what we know is impossible and living with the guilt of not being able to do it. And I pray that we would find that release, that freedom, that forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And I thank you for the love that you've shown us. I pray that we would appropriate that in our hearts. And I pray that as a result of that, our love for you would grow. Our love for those around us would grow. We'd be able to show them the love of Jesus Christ, pointing them to you so that they too can experience the love and the grace and the freedom and the forgiveness that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.